Hello, friends. Welcome to Healing the Divide, Episode 5. Today, I am so grateful and feeling incredibly blessed to be sitting down with Arjun Kumar, who is a meditation and mindfulness teacher, uh, guide, and psychedelic integration coach. We have so much to dive into. I want to give a little bit of background. So, um, in Arjun's words, it's, it was through the process, and the, I'm sure it continues to be through the process of emptying out and getting out of the way, um, finding out that something emerges from this this space, a natural heart based expression of what he feels to be true through the medium of spoken and written word. I share these um, expressions as well, the spoken word, the written word, the meditation, the integration work that comes um, before, during, and after ceremony, um, and, um, and sitting with really the intelligence that lives in other species and what communing with them can bring up. So I am eager, anticipatory, and grateful uh, for the conversation and then a little bit of background um, for our listeners, too, that Arjun and I just met in person. This is the first time we've spoken in person just a few minutes ago. Um, and we haven't overly planned this conversation. But what has compelled me to reach out to him is we encountered one another through the platform of Instagram. And it's one of those things for all the downsides or toxicity or complaints that we hear about Instagram or social media in general, I think to some extent, to the degree that we maybe create a conscious boundary around what we um, have in our feed, what we expose ourselves to, we start to encounter people um, that really touch our hearts and our spirits. And um, first, of course, I saw the name Arjun. And as a avid fan of the Bhagavad Gita and um, Arjuna being the protagonist. I said, what is this? And let me, let me dive a little deeper. And, um, and I was grateful to have found this video of you speaking and right away, as I'm sure our audience will feel in a moment, I was touched by your presence, um, not only the words, but the space and energy from which and with which they're spoken and the resonance that I could feel right through the screen even. So thank you for the yes and in, in, in saying um, yes to this, this interview and this conversation. And I'm happy to have you here. Wow. Thank you very much, Scott. I'm, um, yeah, I, I'm humbled um, by your introduction and also reflect what you said about the manner in which we, we came together and uh really a firm believer and this has been through evidence over recent times that we really um will, will naturally connect with souls and people that are on the same frequency as us you know and if we are continuously practicing heart-based expression and are being vulnerable and sharing our truths there is going to be shared transmission with people that are also um, walking that same path. And I really, I feel that we all want to, to open up. And I think as we continue to open up, we give other people opportunities to open up. And this really feels like 
you know direct evidence of that so i'm really humbled to, to be here and i'm really thankful that you actually reached out and took that step to invite me um on your um in your space and to to continue this um this conversation thank you so much yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it and i had this thought in the lead up of since we are both uh, meditation practitioners and guides and sort of live and function in that space I was imagining our conversation unfolding as meditation. And that really has been so much of the work for me in my life is that there's, there's a certain power to container that like I can begin the meditation, I can sit in it and then I can to some degree uh, close the space. But really I think in its heart, the invitation is to bring it with us or maybe it's not even that we make it into an it that we bring, but we invite life to flow into this meditation space, into the container. And so yeah. I wanted to really invite the meditation or the conversation, I should say, to be the container. And then I wanted to extend the invitation to whomever might be listening to this. So wherever you are, if you are at home, you got the AirPods in, you're driving in your car, you're taking a bike ride, you're wherever you happen to be in this moment, you know, could we all three take a breath together and just invoke the spirit of connection and opening to the mystery as it expresses itself through us. So if you are so willing Arjun as my guest and and you as the listener to let's all just take a breath. And just opening this container to be one that supports the deepening of presence, the illuminating of the constellation. Um, that is us as a collective, um, each of these individual stars, these individual lights of locus of consciousness. Um, as we connect with one another, the whole grid starts to light up and new circuitries of connection and expression are formed. And that feels like really something to be in devotion to. And so I wanted to kick this off by asking you to just share a little bit around what your understanding of the human journey from conditioning, maybe we'll call it the inculcation um, to maybe it's, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but whether we call that liberation or, awakening do you see it as linear is there ultimacy etc cetera, etc cetera. so like what what is this thing that we're even talking about like can you can you give us the map before we get to how to traverse it um sure what well, what's a um opening question <laughs> uh, thank you scott yeah what a place to begin so i can um certainly speak to my own lived experience um and yeah in, in terms of 
the awareness that I was living in purely a conditioned reactivity, which I had no control over, um, this sort of like opening, this little bit of light shining through into what seemed like very, very tight, dense, concrete walls of thinking um, was in 2010. And it was a very, very pivotal experience. And it was the, so I would have been about 24 um, at that time. And of course, there's a, a long lead up to it. But the, the, the moment itself was um, in Ibiza, in, uh, which is a, a Balearic island, you know, of, of Spain. And it's, uh, people go there for, to get high, right? Whether you are a spiritual seeker and you're going on, on that type of journey, or you're going to go to some of the best clubs in the world and you have chemical substances, which are going to get you high. It's a very beautiful, magical place. And um, we were there, to, you know, to 12 friends. There was uh, lots and lots of drugs, lots and lots of alcohol, um, and it was really hitting it hard. And there just came a moment sort of five or six days in where – I was literally spinning out in this space in well, the club was called space coincidentally. And, um, really asked myself these questions. What the hell am I doing? There was a sign in the toilet where I was, you know, I just couldn't see anything. My vision was absolutely blurred and it said drugs are not the answer. Um, and it just happened to be the perfect timing for that message to, to really hit home. Um, I then, got home a few days later and I remember getting to my mum and seeing her and I just broke down in tears and I was like, everything, I've been living an absolute lie. You know, absolutely everything has been completely and utterly um, a lie. It's a mess. I've created, you know, a lot of angst within me, you know, psychologically and mentally, emotionally. I, my relationships were poor. My health was poor. My career was non-existent. And, you know, I was really creating this destructive reality around me. And I remember she gave me this 14 um, tape, cassette tape, like deck old cassette tapes, which you can rewind and, and fast forward and stuff with the, the tape inside. And um, it was by Dr. Wayne Dyer, if you're familiar with him, but a motivational um, yeah. you know, speaker and author. And I, and I went through those 14 cassettes very, very quickly. And it was like it was absolutely speaking to me. Um, and this began the process then of paying attention to my thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And of course, the immediate thing is like, I need, I want to run away. I want the well, I want the earth to swallow me up. I need to escape. Everyone knows everything. You know, everyone's looking at me. I, my, my friends don't want to be my friends anymore. And because all of these things that I was carrying with me, the sort of guilt, the shame, regret of a lot of my behaviors and actions which had obviously led to this mess that I was living and of course you know there's no way to escape from when it's within you and so the only way um out is through and so this was the then the slow and painful and and, and gradual um beginning of of that that journey and I think the more it sort of goes on and the more we sort of learn these um, tools and techniques that can help us to befriend our inner life, which is for me, meditation and mindfulness, then there 
slowly becomes understood or there is this realization that it's our very own thoughts, feelings, emotions, our behaviors, which are really creating the reality that we experience. And although it seems very cliche to say and very sort of like throw away that we then have a choice, we can decide to change our thoughts, feelings, emotions, and behaviors, not immediately, but then there is this potential to be able to um, have a bit more authority and a bit more agency over our inner world. And I think there's many names for this, this process, but I would say then awakening really is awakening to yourself. And it suggests the word that you've been sleeping. And if you've been mm-hmm. sleeping, you know, you've been living in the dark through your conditioning. And I know from this investigation, my conditioning was from, of course, it, all of our conditioning is from, isn't it? The moment where we are born, um, when we come into this this earth, I think it's, it's Bruce Lipton, the biology of belief. He He's like the father of epigenetics. You, I'm sure you've heard of him. Um, mm-hmm. It's a great book, would recommend it. And he, he, he talks that from zero to about seven, um, we're in this theta state, T-H-E-T-A, theta state, which is akin to hypnosis. And essentially the brain is like a sponge, you know, it's picking up all of this sensory and behavioral data from the world around us and eventually is shaping the operating system from which we then eventually build upon when we create our personality and our identity through when we grow older. But that's the operating system ultimately that you carry around with you for the rest of your life. And then without that level of awareness um, as to what created your operating system, what energy was put in there, what's your parents' characteristics, what are their behaviors, what are the most dominant energies, how is their living standards, what's the, the cultural imprint, what's the media impressions, how is your school and the friends that you hang around with, all of this, it just comes into this this pot, which ultimately then, which comes through us as a personality and then what we identify with. And for me, there was lots of unsavory um, times and situations and events in those early years, um, which shaped my behaviors and my actions. And um, it's only through the process of then investigating Why do I have these thought patterns? Why am I reacting this way to this situation? Why do I like that? Why do I not like that? Why do I have these lessons repeat themselves over and over again, which takes contemplation, it takes meditation, it takes a real intensity to really want to investigate the nature of my mind, of my inner life, to really have some understanding and eventually some agency over the decisions I'm making this moment now. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing such a beautiful and human interpretation of the human condition. And I think there's something for all of us to relate to in that and really fill in the blanks with our own uh, versions of that story of 
the imprints of life. And I'm thinking of in addition to and this was kind of brought up for me in listening to you, like in addition to the nurture element or the conditioning post-incarnation in the, in the yoga teachings, there's this idea of parabda karma, which is like the conditioning from all of our experiences as soul from wherever we've journeyed before this and this sort of embedded filter through which we even interpret those experiences. And it just so quickly defies any sort of intellectual grasping that it almost seems to implore that even as we approach this U-turn of our awareness from looking out to looking into self, um, that we do it with a tenderness and a humbleness and sort of an intellectual humility, maybe, um, but also uh, a warmth and a friendliness um, that the recognition of having carried those imprints that when we do come into recognition of our patterns and our personality tendencies that will probably to some degree unconsciously be interpreting through the very lens that mm. they have you know produced through our life and so it's it's such a subtle process and mm. Uh, one more thing I wanted to offer for our listeners and get your thoughts on in um, in a text called Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, they talk about the preparation for practice for if I were to begin this, what would be the essential qualities of presence that I would want to carry with me to show up in support of whatever might surface and it's sort of like if I'm going to go on a hike and it's really long, I want to make sure I've got the right shoes. I've got water. I've got sunscreen. I've got some food. Um, and, and so he says to bring tapas or the kind of the staying power is how I interpret that of when it starts to feel a little difficult or we hit that point, like you said, where you just want to recoil and not look at it. It's painful. It's not self-confirming the standards that we may have um, really held of ourselves in, in order to be, um, whether that's lovable or worthy or mattering or whatever our personality imprinted so that that capacity and willingness to stay the course when it gets a little bit difficult. And I do want to get a little deeper into that piece because I think that can have some downsides in terms of things like trauma and windows of tolerance and, and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but, but to, but to continue in a conscious way, if not all in one big bite. And the next piece he says is called Swadhyaya, which is like, the way I was taught it was like the most direct interpretation of that term is to put into oneself. So it's really this sort of like, I'm not just going to engage material at the conceptual level or at the effectual level even, but at the primal level of like, who is the I that's even asking? Who is the I that is on this journey? And really be in a self-reflective um, 
adventure in a sense. And, um, and then the last one is Ishwara Pranidhana, which is like this, um, this deep surrendering of the attachment to the identification with this I that we've learned to be. And through the amalgamation of these co-essential qualities, we begin to have the necessary building blocks, if you will, to the foundations of a meditation practice or a homecoming of sorts. So if I were to put that into a question for you, like, when, do you agree with that? Would you adapt it? Would you add to it? If somebody was, you know, beginning in their self-inquiry journey, their healing journey, um, what might you offer them or some essential tools to bring along? Hmm. Yeah, good question. And I, I love some of the points that you um, you brought up there. There's a, a lot to un- unpack. And you, you, the, you, the first thing you said there, Scott, was the... Um, the, the, the kindness towards ourselves, you know, the, the sort of really treating yourself like a friend and really being warm and compassionate to yourself as you go through the process because ultimately the um, this shedding of, of layers, the, the sort of excavation um, of, of the self or the layers of our personality being removed, it's like a mourning isn't it? It's like a grieving period that takes place and we feel it so deeply and it can be very heavy and can be very dark because ultimately it's all we've ever known. You know, it's been with us for, for, for so long and it's given us all of the, the joyful moments, it's given us all the painful moments and we know ultimately it's the identity and the personality or the idea of the personality or the ego as they call it that suffers the higher self doesn't suffer what 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 is suffering is the idea of mm-hmm. uh, ourself and um to be kind and compassionate and non-judgmental i think are, are beautiful attitudes to have but also mm-hmm. be prepared to hate yourself and judge yourself and be annoyed with yourself and criticize yourself because even that is part of the conditioning because we are um naturally going to be faced with all of the things that we've been suppressing and all of the things that maybe we've we've pushed away unknowingly, they're all going to then come up because we've all of a sudden decided, right, I'm going to sit and meditate. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to wake myself up. You know, it's um, it's a destructive process. And so there's going to be parts of you, parts of your identity that wants to hold on yeah. really tightly to this identity. And all of those things are then going to come up. And then it's even then showing warmth and compassion and kindness to the moments that we are judging ourselves because those will happen automatically. The self-judgment, the self-criticism will come up so quickly. But can we even be then kind to ourselves when we notice that? And this is going to, again, take some time and some, some love and some patience and some kindness towards ourselves. Um, but be, be prepared for the, the, the challenge, the difficulty. And I think, it's still a radical act, um, and, I, and I love how you um, phrase it in, in in your book, Reverse Graffiti. You say it's it's an inner activism, and that's exactly what it is. And I, I and I would say as well, it's a inner rebellion. And I know Osho he he says it as well because we're literally going against everything we've ever known. We're swimming upstream. We're going against 
99% of society. If it was an easy game, everyone would be doing this. Um, yeah. it, it's not. It's challenging. And to, to, to go within, it's going to be hot and intense and you're going to feel the fire. And if, like me, and I think like I would say many of our listeners, we, we've done things, there is shame, there is guilt, there's regret. Maybe this comes from collective consciousness so you know collective trauma maybe this comes from individual trauma um we're going to feel these things these are very very real if we've not allowed these emotions to do their work and pass through and really integrated them when we sit to meditate they'll come up and they'll be they'll feel really hot when we're in this process of self-inquiry everything needs to come out everything needs to be burped out and everything needs to be um burnt through and some um, muji um who's I have a great affinity to us for many years listening to Muji. Yeah. He says it beautifully. It's like sit in the fire of self-discovery. And he says, what will be burnt is not you. You know, that all the impurities will get burnt away. All of the samskaras, all of the things that we've been holding on to and we get attached to, the layers of conditioning, the identity, the attachments. These are the things that get burnt away in the fire of self-discovery. And this is the alchemical process, alchemy which is the, you know, the turning of lead into gold through this chemical heating process. The spiritual alchemy is that. It's the meditation. It's then taking all of the dross, all of the crap, all of the layers, the stuff that we didn't really have a choice over and we've habituated over so many years. This is what gets burnt away. And if we have the, the courage, the patience, the love for ourselves, a support network, perhaps a guide that's going to help us we we can stay in that we can stay in that fire and like you said there is sometimes professional help that needs to come in depending on the level of trauma you experience and i know you are a, you're a somatic coach this requires layers that requires other types of important work to go through this process but ultimately if we can sit through the fire of this self-discovery and eventually cool the fire with the breeze of contemplation and reflection mm. then eventually these things turn into wisdom right and it's joe Dispenza who says memory or experience without emotional charge becomes wisdom you know if we're mm -hmm. carrying around experiences and memories which we haven't processed and they still in this present day we can get triggered and feel those emotions right now in this present moment. That is, that's enslavement. You know, they don't have any bearing on now. Um, mm -hmm. They're just something we're carrying on and we haven't allowed them to be processed. Whereas through the, this gentle process of meditation, contemplation, reflection, um, we can slowly, um, you know, process them and eventually integrate them and then eventually as they become wisdom we have a new way of being we have a new way of interacting in the world because we're going to be a little bit more mindful a little bit more skillful and have the potential and the possibility to make new decisions in the face of our old triggers um so i think it's important to be prepared for the difficulty and the challenge because it ain't easy. I mean, you, you have to, um, we, you know, not, nothing that is worth it is easy, you know. You need some graphs. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, yeah. 
and I think it was in reverse graffiti. There's something about that was like in the complete annihilation of the only one she's ever known herself to be. She comes face to face with the irreconcilable beauty of the only one that she has ever truly been. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And, or maybe it's the irrevocable beauty. I don't remember exactly, but it's this mm-hmm. idea. And it's funny because you use the word heat multiple times. And I was describing it with the Sanskrit word tapas, which translates as heat. Mm-hmm. And the, and then the reflective is the putting it into yourself, and then the falling away of what we're not is the surrender. And so, really, mm-hmm. as you describe the process, it really did distill these three fundamental pieces. And one of the things I've really appreciated about following you on on Instagram is um, also your writing. And you had presenced a moment ago, um, Osho, and. Um, that you have this one piece that you shared with me, um, the uh, is it meditation for the rebels or, or something to this mm-hmm. um, extent? Do you have that um, pulled up or accessible, or you could yeah. share it? I think it would be such a gift for everybody to take in your writings, and then I'd love to unpack that a little bit, and then um, share a writing with you um, that I haven't mm. put out either, and get your thoughts, and maybe we'll just share some pieces and see where. Um, where it goes. And the reason, let me set this up actually, um, kind of like a dereliction of my duties here as a podcast host. Um, reason, reason being that ultimately this, this alchemical process that you describe to me, it's, it's an alchemy of transmuting adversity into artistry. So when we get to take out out of like this like molten like everything is breaking down and falling apart and all of that and all of a sudden that becomes the very material through which you produce your offerings and your ceremony and your art and the most beautiful and relatable aspects of life really come out of that and so poetry mm-hmm. is an is an expression of that so the that if if you can take the inquiry and the pain and transmute that into this living piece of art. Like, wow. I mean, Mm -hmm. that, that is a movement where pain becomes service, Mm -hmm. especially once it is shared. So I would love for this moment to be one where we could actually not just talk about that, but directly share it. So if you're comfortable and amenable to sharing this piece, I'd love to hear you, you um, share it with our listeners. Yeah, thank you, Scott. I, I love how you describe that. That's, that's a killer uh, phrase there, adversity into artistry. Um, yeah, it's so, it's so true. You know, it's like the, the, the deepest wounds can be transmuted into the deepest wisdom, you know, if we're so willing to mm-hmm. be in that middle process, which is the most, most challenging because, yeah, the, the, the beauty comes out of the, the chaos and, and the disorder. And, um, yeah, and I think some of the, the pieces that have been emerging from me lately, um, have been really reflective of that. And it's, I, I feel that there is a, um, a leaning in towards the, um, the, the, the pain and some of the darkness and some of the things that are coming out. And it's interesting because this time of the year is, I mean, where I am at the moment, just in, in New York state, it's been minus, 10 minus 12 
degrees Celsius. I don't know in, in Fahrenheit for, for your um, the American listeners here, but it's <laughs> cold. It feels like there's lots of snow and it's hibernating, and um, it's very reflective of what's going on in in the, the inner life at the moment. And it's really sort of tuning mm-hmm. into that and allowing for my expression to honor the current phase that I'm in. And I think that's what you're speaking to. I, 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 what, what came up for me is so it's really important to, to really honor where you are and allow your expression to really be authentic in the space that you are. It's not always going to be love, light and, you know, jumping around and dancing and, you know, being so happy. Um, because ultimately then if we're not willing to be in the other side of the other, you know, the extreme of the other duality, we don't deserve to have the other side of it, you know, because this, this, yeah. we are in this world of dualities and it's, it's about traversing both sides and, um, and ultimately being able to then allow what wants to emerge from being in those spaces, um, to, to be the truth of who you are in, in any given moment. Um, so thank you for the space to read. Mm-hmm. I've not, I've not um, shared this. As I say, it was um, produced um, as a graduation talk for a recent meditation teacher training carried out in New York. Um, and so I performed it, for want of another word, there. Um, and so, uh, yeah, first time it's sort of leaving that um, container. But yeah, it's called Meditation is for the Rebels. Um, yeah, inspired by... Osho, um, his book called The Rebel. <clears throat> okay. Mm. And so. Thank you. Okay. Um, here I am speaking to the hearts and minds of you, to the wise elders with the sparks still in their eyes and the youth too, the dreamers, the healers, the activists and risk takers, the curious children and the wondrous believers. Those that like to get a little high, the ones that live in fear but yearn to love, the ones that love so hard they can't help but cry, the ones who need change, the ones who are called to revolution, an inner revolution. Now when you look around, what do you see? A world divided, full of desire, operating from conditioned reactivity. I see global decisions based on primal fear and resource scarcity all stemming from the reptilian brain with a limited capacity. Not grounded and present moment vetting, one's thought, emotion and behavior is dictated by a default setting. But my love, I say, it's not your fault. See, from birth begins the prognosis, the brain sponge-like in this theta state, it's basically hypnosis, subconsciously downloading sensory and behavioral data from the world at large. Perhaps it's from a stressed out mother or father who's alcoholic and oppressive consumer culture or a brain washed by an education inauthentic. Impression after impression, layer upon layer. Too young to discern what is wrong or right, the hard wiring of the operating system continues. Habituating, habituating, habituating. It becomes so tight. Now, if we're wired for connection, we've got our wires crossed. Dense neural circuitry like mechanical mental forestry buried under layers of personality. Perhaps it's called a personality because it creates your personal reality. A mere projection of your programming. Yes, 
Living life on autopilot is energy conserved, but your truth reserved. Unaware in this state, you're at the mercy of those that remotely control. They make you believe you are just your name, rooted in some role and buried in ideas of profession, assigned to mere political parameters that are not so liberal. Firmly attached in the belief of your nation, these invisible borders are a man-made creation. You think you're this and you believe you're that, but then you're alien to this and you're alien to that. This human race is in a constant chase. And here we have the modern world, never more connected, but from the source of our true nature, never have we been more fragmented. So I say, fuck it all and rebel and make meditation your rebellion. Make meditation your rebellion. The modern world wants you dull and distracted. I say rebel, meditate and sharpen your focus. The modern world wants you a passive consumer. I say rebel, meditate and be the dynamic creator. The modern world wants you isolated and fixated on identity. I say rebel, meditate and dissolve the walls that protect you from true community. The modern world wants you living chained to past deeds. I say rebel, meditate and plant the mind with new seeds. The modern world wants you frantic and hurried. I say rebel, meditate so you can pause and take your time a little less worried. The modern world wants you constricted and confined. I say rebel, meditate and release the fluid serpent in your spine. The modern world wants socially accepted conformity. I say rebel, meditate and breathe life into your unique expression and originality. The modern world wants you blindly following rules and regulations. I say rebel, meditate and be guided by a higher intuition. The modern world is loud, it constantly pings. I say rebel, meditate and experience the majesty that silence brings. The modern world wants you to forget. I say rebel, meditate and cultivate the remembrance of that which never left. The modern world wants you living alert in fear. I say rebel, meditate and feel the power of all-encompassing love. The modern world wants you to wear a mask. I say rebel, meditate and discover the natural beauty of your face underneath. So I say rebel and make meditation your rebellion. An inner rebellion against all that is false within you. My friend, meditate, meditate like you mean it. Meditate like you love yourself and the world you inhabit. My dear, meditate and watch the walls of thought soften on your cushion. See how these beliefs and differences were nothing but an illusion. Brothers, notice how every meditation is cleansing the lens of your perception so pure. Now with these fresh eyes, Tell me how you can't help but see all of life with reverence and awe. Sisters, watch as meditation carries you from the beliefs of your mind to the knowing in your heart. Meditate and spark the flame in your heart. Magnify and amplify. Let it blaze, let it shine. And as you do so, know you're sparking all of theirs and you spark mine. And together, my rebels will make this whole damn place divine. I love you.
Whoa, deep bow. That was. <laughs> Thank you. I need a moment. <laughs> wow. Honestly, man, that is like one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Oh, man. It means a lot. Thank you for the words there, Scott. Thank you for yours. I mean, you really, yeah, you captured it all. I mean, the, the understanding to the embodiment, to the invocation of the energy. And uh, wow, that was something I feel so grateful to have this documented on, on the podcast. And, uh, and that's just something really, really special that you just shared. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the space to um to be able to do so. Um yeah, thank you. There was a piece that jumped out for me when you were talking about being wired. I mean, a lot of it jumped out to be honest. I mean, the default settings, the condi- I mean all of it, but there was something like a thought that bubbled which was like if we're wired for connection, maybe like the wires are crossed, you know, and um, like we really are wired for connection. And that seems to be where we get so tripped up because so much of our wounding is relational. And so then we go to do our healing and we tend to turn away from the relational and we go into the sort of silo of our own internal process. And we start to work these things out to mm-hmm. whatever degree we are able to alone. In fact, we'll even say like, I'm not ready to be in a relationship yet, or I've got to do some work on myself or something to that extent. And even if it's not just romantically, I mean, most of the patterns that show up in our romantic relationships, as we know from attachment theory is, you know, our relationship to our, our, our primary caregivers, um, especially in our, our, you know, more moldable youth where those, those neural scaffoldings are, are very more clay-like. And, um, and so anyway, where this brings me is as we come out of the meditation and we bring all that energy you just curated in that piece to the realm of relationship and then relationship pushes on the tendencies. And we hear this so often, I know you do, you must in your integration work. I don't want to presume, but um, I thought I healed this part of me. I thought I did this work. I sat with this pattern. I, I worked on this. Like, so it seems to me, there's almost this sort of karmic necessity of relationship being the incubator for the healing to come into its more um what's the word like like almost like i'm imagining like the the the, like the cauterizing of a wound or like when it fully like integrates or like the the connective tissue like right back you know right into place Mm. um so yeah what is your thoughts on the necessity of relationship or not in the healing process? Mm. Yeah, good question. I think there's, um, I can answer this in, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a few different ways. Um, I, I'm in the, I, I've recently separated from, from my wife. Um, 
we've been together for seven years and um you know i won't go into too much detail because it's still very raw it's just you know past sort of few months or so um and so i I will speak to to that in terms of the yeah the, the the real vital um and necessary elements of our healing requires relationship because purely because of the you you are reflecting yourself and as as, as you will agree i see see you nodding there scott it's uh our, our triggers are very apparent they're very real they're very gritty um when we're in the container of relationship right i think the saying goes anyone can go meditate in a cave you know everything is easy when you're on your own you haven't got anyone to to trigger you and it's imperative that you go and metaphorically meditate in a cave for a little while the cave inside you right you need time to be on your own and do do your own in inner work so then you have enough spaciousness to be able to be in your relationship without purely being you know reactive and just throwing all of your own crap yeah um so it requires that but yeah you're only really going to find out about those repressed parts of your psyche and your shadow when you're in a relationship and like you say it doesn't have to be romantic um is it Eckhart Tolle and I think Ramdas as well said something along the lines if you think you're enlightened you know go spend a week with your family you know go and do the real work mm-hmm. um yeah in 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 relationship to people that have the historical baggage of you you know they have they've been conditioned to your behaviors how you used to be okay and they have these ideas of you and they project onto you these roles and i you know this idea they have of you and this can be very subtle and energetic um you know, it could just be in the way they talk. And if, you know, if me, I, if I've done a level of work and I've done a level of healing and I've, you know, like you said, I've, I've done that, you know, I, I've moved past that. And then I'm there with, with my mom or, um, you know, my, my partner and then bang, I'm there, I'm brought back and I feel like I've, I've slipped backwards. You know, I've, all that work I've done is, it's gone to waste. And here, here I am again, triggered. I've got angry. I'm pissed off. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like you're starting again but it's like we just keep we we, we need the the food that is like the isn't it it's the food that we we need to continuously um digest to, to throw up um you know for want of a better analogy in the process of, mm-hmm. of of our healing and so you know you might be this lone wolf archetype um and and that might suit you. I think everyone's journey is different and everyone's path is, is different. Um, but you can only really test the level of growth and, you know, how, how evolved have you become really, how much work have you done really? How much, um, you know, do you, do you understand about yourself? How much do you love yourself when you know, you are in the situations that used to bring you a lot of pain and a lot of suffering? Um, and then, and eventually over time this is that they just don't trigger you as much anymore or you they do trigger you and you just have a little bit more space to respond a bit more mindfully or a bit more skillfully rather than just be a slave to reactivity 
you know, where we don't really have the choice because, you know, without our awareness, like we said, that you mentioned the operating system, the default mode network, which has stored all of this information. And it's, you know, that self, self-referential part of me, the I, my identity, my memories, all of that sort of stuff. If we're not engaged and aware from moment to moment, as soon as we switch off, that comes into play. That's why it's the default. It's your default setting. You know, and if you're not aware of your thoughts, feelings, emotions, and actions in every given moment, you switch off, that, that, that's going to take over. You know, that, that, that's how we conserve energy. That's how the brain conserves energy. You just use the stuff that it's habituated and stored in there. Um, so you don't have to do the work. And if it's not very healthy for you, not very savory, it causes a lot of trouble. It will continue to do so. Um, so it, it requires like moment to moment awareness. Um, I think Muji mm-hmm. said, he said, freedom is free, but it's not cheap. Mm. This ain't gonna, I love that. Freedom is free. Yeah, it's beautiful. Freedom is free, but it's not cheap. It's just going to cost you yourself. That don't cost anything. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because a lot of times people will, it's why I wanted to dive into it through this lens of the human condition and not just practice because people talk about it and say, you know, like, um, you know, it's a daily practice for me. And I'm like, man, that is massively macro. Like, daily like that's way too big like we need to it's what you said it's a moment by moment process and practice it's it, we don't practice in the, the sense of the day we practice mm-hmm. in the sense of the presence and you know i've been studying a lot of um the sort of the latter parts of the yoga sutras recently and they talk about this concept of what's called anu and you and it's like the sort of irreducible property of um is like Purusha or like spirit that sits beneath the samskaras you were presencing earlier, the imprinted patterns. And it's like, it's always fundamentally present, but it only is here in this present moment. So it's not living in the past. So the, to the degree that like you've been expressing that we're showing up as our past, because really through a beautiful efficiency process of this default mode network, it's, um, it, it's an, it's an evolutionary inheritance from our ancestors that, you know, when we were, you know, predator by day and prey by night, we would have to shift into this default mode of like scanning the environment for potential threat. And then the, the we, you know, there's like a biological optimization process that says, you know, this is where threat can come and I can be aware of it. And when we default to that, a lot of times it does like tend to kick in at night when we go to bed and we start to pull back from the active, like positive task brain. It's like that shift into what could go wrong, but instead of like the saber tooth tiger or the lion coming, it's like, what's going on in my relationship? How's that situation going to play out at work? What does my bank account look like? And nowadays it's like, what's happening with my, you know, TikTok. <laughs> it's like, it's so wild. And um, the things that we make matter, and we just kind of take this similar processes and we put them into these more updated contexts, but the process is the same. So it really does implore us to have to, not to have to, but should we feel so inclined and to our capacities 
look at what is what are the beliefs that I'm carrying or the models in which I'm living the value sets that I carry that aren't even mine? Mm. Like what am I carrying that was never mine to hold? And how does that get projected into all of these places? Like you said in, in the, in the poem, you know, the, that spoken word, like that, like all of these big decisions that are happening in the world are coming from like these points of primal pain inside of us and and so really the the inner work it's like the most important work and it's it's beautiful and and because so much of it gets laid down in the tracks of these subtle grooves um i know in my journey even at this point in life being fully grown being a father i've started to go back and look at the imprints that i've um taken on from my early childhood. And I wanted to presence this because it's a, it's a subtle one and we can kind of self-invalidate, but you know how you were talking about receiving the Wayne Dyer tapes? Um, mm-hmm. It's a similar journey. It's funny. I'm, I'm guessing so that you're was 38 ish now, I'm guessing by what you. In a few months. Yeah. A few months, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm 48 and a similar journey. I kind of um, started to deep dive into yoga when I was 24, which was in 1999. And, um, and, and in a little bit before Wayne Dyer and the like um, laws of attraction and things like that, um, the the sort of the person that created, I was this guy named Bob Proctor. And Mm -hmm. when I was um, 15 years old, my dad gave me a bunch of cassette tapes of Bob Proctor from that my dad had must have had from I don't even know these were like from the seventies but it was like books of cassette tapes yeah. so I was laughing and I was sharing that and as you were sharing that and power of positive thinking and how to win friends and influence yeah. people and all these yeah. books that um, I had as a teenager but it was like dude I was like too young to know what to do with them and it was almost like. I was taking all this well-intentioned advice, but it, it became projected into like a future that I wasn't there with yet. So that became the default mode would be like, what could go wrong is I'm not seeing the big picture as my dad would always make sure you see the big picture. I don't get a job, have a career. Uh, smart people learn by other people's mistakes, like, you know, all these different things. And it's like, well, this is awesome that like, I have a father who loves me and cares about me and wants the best for me. But it, it was in a sense, totally well-intentioned and I love him so much. And I'm so grateful for him. So dad, if you ever listen to this podcast, I love you. And I appreciate all that you have shared with me. Um, and also there's been maybe an, an over inheritance of his worldviews and values at the expense of coming into my own through particular layers of development. And so I wanted to share this poem with you. Um, and it was based on this idea of like seeing the big picture, but like reclaiming that in my own terms. Um, so, um, so this is called the big picture. When I was a young child, my dad would have this saying, see the big picture, son. But it wasn't reserved for when I was misbehaving. It was all the time, any chance he'd get to teach me about life. 
Yet when I started heeding his advice, my mind began to question, who was I before this life? Where do I go once I die? I became obsessed with what's on the other side. But everywhere I looked, it felt like everyone was blind, chasing after dollar signs, like that was the biggest picture they could find. I thought maybe I was the one who lost my mind, seeking different kinds of signs. But a quiet voice kept nudging me to look inside. What I saw was not just my thoughts passing by but thoughts deconstructed into molecules of consciousness like particles of light just drifting by. Yet as soon as I'd open my eyes, I'd reconstruct them into an eye. Like personality is an outfit we wear so we can hide. Until I looked within and saw that in truth personality is an outfit we wear so we can find what we think we've lost when we encountered the pain inside this life, the wounds and the strife, the grief inside my heart, use personality to achieve my worth, outsourced from outside like worth was something I could achieve. When it's intrinsic to my soul and to my life, and as I learn to identify what I'm seeking, like, for example, security in my being, my practice becomes seeing the place from which I'm seeing. And when I shift my awareness to the unchanging ground of my being, I see the big picture, and that is truly freeing. Then, personality becomes an instrument to give what I am seeking, to love all, serve all, and keep repeating. And then I see an even bigger picture in which I am just awareness perceiving, where there's no inside or outside, just a spectrum of being. And our life isn't about some grand achieving or anchoring identity into the realm of the beliefs. I find security in believing just an invitation to enter into this vessel of breathing and shift my energy towards the openness to the blessings I'm receiving, where I can practice loving everything and everyone who I am seeing, especially in the places and the people where it's hardest, because those are the parts of me projected outwards that I am working on retrieving. I'm polishing the lens through which I'm perceiving so that I can see the biggest picture yet, which is to see the truth that while we are many, we are one collective being. So, will you join me in taking a deep breath of love in for yourself and exhale out everything else? That was beautiful, Scott. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, um, yeah, I'm, I think your uh, your father would be proud that he was a mm. a trigger for what's emerging from you. 
Thank you Beautiful. so much. Yeah, I think, yeah. and it's truly with the, the deepest of gratitude for him because, like, we're all operating from wherever the consciousness is that we are. But the 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 intention being so pure, it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. But to get yeah. to reclaim it for myself, according to what truly matters for me, like it's its own um, going back into like little Scott and finding this little boy that like, you know, is just inside of all of these adult versions and, and realizing that when we're triggered, the whole point of this default thing is that we sort of, we, we retract back to being the age at the, this, the, where the development um, was halted or arrested at the wound site really. And so, you know, all things considered, we're really operating from a younger version of ourselves. And so when we talk about befriending the trigger and befriending ourselves, I think when it is in a relational context, especially too, like to remember that behind any triggered experience and emotion or a person is having, that there is like a little person in there. And we, each have, of course, we carry the responsibility for ourselves. And I like to think that responsibility is response ability. And how do we, what is our ability to respond? And um, when we can do that for one another, we give each other such grace. And when we see these, all of these massively disproportionate responses to things or, or damaging and destructive responses to things, instead of being in relationship to the response, if we could get beneath it and behind Mm. it and come into Mm. relationship with the one who is feeling the feeling that is generating that response, then we Mm. can have an opportunity for true healing to happen both inwardly and as a result outwardly too. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, and that requires us to be able to do that with ourselves first. It's like, can we really be that same process, you know, going behind the trigger, you know, rather than judging the response and meeting it at surface level, you know, are we doing that practice on ourselves? You know, are we really mm-hmm. um, slowing down and really becoming mindful of, first off, how do, how do these triggers affect us? And that can be a really good way of like, getting under the surface of our thoughts about the situation. And um, it's one of the practices that we, um, we, we use in the, um, do you know, the eight week MBSR, so mindfulness based stress reduction program. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, one of the, uh, the, the, the practices is um, to really become aware of our thoughts, our feelings and um, the emotions, physical sensations, all of these things which are going to be going on when we are triggered, obviously it's a bit, bit, very like short space of time, but the practice is to really like pause and can we actually become intimate with what's actually going on? So really get familiar with the physiological responses. You know, what is our then our, what thoughts show up when we're actually triggered and mm-hmm. what is the, behavioral response what is the reactivity you know what is then the 
the, the emotions that, that show up in the trigger. And, and this, all of this is like providing a space between us who's then, you know, experiencing the trigger. But normally when we are lost in our head and the thinking about the trigger, how it, what it means to us in the grand scale of things and how we're going to get our revenge on someone or how we need to like, this person needs to forgive me or whatever the interaction is that's created the trigger. It's like, first off, we just take a pause and take a step back and, and see what's actually going on. What's the direct experience? You know, what's actually going on for you? Um, what's your human experience firstly, not just the thought based interpretation, which of course, as we've discussed earlier, is at the mercy of your conditioning. You know, is your reflection and interpretation of the experience and the interaction actually true and what is actually going on in the moment? Or is it based on your, your, your past trauma and, you know, what your, your conditioning and all of that sort of psyche that's sort of built up and you're carrying with you into this moment. So I think, yeah, creating that space to drop behind that for yourself um, will naturally allow you to then be appreciative of your, you know, your interpersonal relationships when the other person is triggered. Um, mm -hmm. You then have an opportunity to relate with them in that same level. You know, it's so beautiful to use the body as the reference system to mm. really almost at the level of the nervous system to take in. Because a lot of times we, you know, because of the prefrontal cortex going offline in the sort of top of the bell curve of that um, anatomy of the trigger experience, there's something to me that's so reliable about not getting too caught up in the content by just checking in with my nervous system. And if mm -hmm. I sense that my nervous system is dysregulated right away, I know don't speak from this place. Don't mm -hmm. choose from this space. <laughs> like, and, and dis that discomfort always compels us to, to act. And we mm -hmm. usually act in accordance to the energy of the discomfort. So if I'm going to yell, I'm going to yell to the energy of my discomfort. If I'm going to bolt, I'm going to get as far away as the energy of my discomfort. And it's sort of this natural, you know, recalibrating process that we go through, but from a condition lens. But if I could mm -hmm. just go to my nervous system first and say, are we, are we regulated or dysregulated? And then I can let almost everything else fall away other than the task of what helps me self-regulate? And sometimes the truth is in full transparency that I forget I even have those tools or I might um, find that like they don't seem to wield the power that I, I would hope that they would. And in those moments, it's like co-regulation. Can I find somebody that that is regulated or, you know, that I can even just speak with for a few moments. And sometimes that to me has been the most powerful part of my coaching work with people. It hasn't even been our sessions, but the invitation for even like a simple voice text to be exchanged between sessions. So when trigger arises, there can be a presence that can meet you there and say, Hey, mm -hmm. I'm going to record, you know, a little 60 second breath work, just, just follow along, drop in. And so I think knowing where our support networks are is so important. Um, mm. I always recommend for people, you know, if you're listening, oh, this is a great tool is 
is make a note in your phone that of self-regulation practices and all you have to remember next time you're dysregulated is like open note, <laughs> like, you know, tattoo mm. it on your wrist to like open note. That's it. And mm. um, anyway, so to, to that all being said, um, I wanted to dive a little bit into practice. So we've been kind of alluding around it and speaking to it in these sort of vague terms. Um, so many different approaches to meditation. Um, so maybe if you don't mind sharing for people that might be looking for um, a like go-to practice, and I understand this might be different for different personality types. One of the things I love working with is Enneagram because it maps personality. And then I can develop meditation protocols based upon personality patterns. So we're essentially assigning the right approach to the right tendency. Um, so I found that really helpful, but I wonder in this sort of community of meditations that you have, if you could maybe speak to a couple of them that have been really powerful for you and yeah, let's start there. I have a few other questions, but I'm going to hang on to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks Scott. I, um, you know, in, in short from, I would say this after, um, 12 or 13 years of being around meditation I would say sort of last six seven years with more intensity and that's grown so from the beginning it was very sort of um you know sort of on and off flirting with it having a relationship with it falling off with meditation and then as I say of, of, of late it's uh very much um an integral pillar of of, of my life but um in short sit still and keep quiet <laughs> that's it just just sit still and be quiet and see what happens and um <laughs> then you know you can build on there you know I, there's you can have your breath awareness practice um just sitting there and following the breath what are the sensations of breathing um what sensations actually show up to let you know you're breathing you know like we it can just be a throwaway oh yeah sit there and focus on your breath but what's like the you know, the direct sensual experience that lets you know breathing is taking place. You know, is there, what's the movement of the breath? You know, what, what's the temperature of air that brushes against the tip of your nostrils? Um, you know, how, how does the belly feel when there's the movement of the breath? And I think this is, um, yes, yeah, somewhere to anchor the attention, um, especially if we're beginning and we need to have an anchor for our attention. The breath is a great one because it's obviously it's, it's always happening. Um, there's never two breaths are never the same. You can try that because people say, oh, it's very boring. Um, but it's not the case because it's your life force that's keeping you alive. There's nothing boring about that. It's the mind that is restless and wants to avoid, you know, being with something so so detailed and, and granular. Um, and there is no future breath and there is no past breath there is only this breath now right that's just the fact that's not esoteric there is only this breath now so if you want to anchor your attention and you want to be present be with the breath i think it, it doesn't get much simpler than that um and of course having an anchor as we know is is useful um 
Is it somewhere to rest the attention and we then have a better opportunity to notice the movement of the mind, the fluctuations and the oscillations that inevitably will come? Getting intimate and familiar with the breath is also, it's just what you were speaking to earlier. It's like you're talking about the awareness of your nervous system and when there is a dysregulation taking place, you we require this connect the mind body connection is fragmented you know I, I would say as a generalization but as a as a culture you know we we we're, we're very disconnected from our body and so that that can be a, a good bridge you know to that and as well as using set physical sensations i, I would say is is another one um i'm i'm sh- talking about the practices that i use i know there's of course you, you can speak to more as well i'll be keen to hear some more about your your practices scott but uh physical sensations again if you're if you're sitting um what are the physical sensations that actually let you know you're sitting you know this can be a very grounding practice what are, you know is there some warmth there's there some some vibrations and pressure on the underside of your thighs that's the attention mm-hmm. there again that's supportive you know what what are the sensations that let you know your body is supportive the soles of your feet you know, is there some some tingling, some pressure, some warmth, some moisture? Again, these are like mm. direct sensory information that is always happening now. So again, it's like this is a good anchor for your attention in order to be present. And then something that's always happening, um, which then allows us to then come back to it when inevitably the mind wanders off again. And then the same process can be done yes. when we walk when we're walking. Again, you know, if we're meditation can be walking as well you know like the same like what what's how does the backs of your calves feel what's the movement of your arms when when you're walking you know how does the the sole of your feet lift up to to your heels to your toes we can be very very precise about um these things and it's again like we, mm-hmm. we can be aware of like the the sensory information and the process um taking place um during any activity but these ones are key for me um Mm -hmm. that that, that i would go with but um yeah Yeah. as i say coming through this meditation teacher training of late um which is based on the mahayana buddhism tradition there's a lot of inner guide meditation where we're sort of you know visualizations of a teacher or a future self you know an ideal version the characteristics of um a teacher that we admire you know like that has courage or kindness or compassion um that we want to embody and of course the process of of this is the fact that we if we can imagine these qualities and these characteristics we already embody them and so you know and obviously neuroscience shows this the habituation of these these ideas and practices um they eventually become behaviors if we keep keep on with them and so and there's love meditations as well, which I, I play around with. Again, it's like mm-hmm. very sort of visualization based and using sort of different imagery. So I've been trained in these things of late, but for, for me, it's like stripping it down to the basics. Just Yeah, stupid. I love yeah. that. Very similar. I, um, I'll say, I guess my practice versus my teaching can be a little bit different in the, just in the recognition that I don't want subjective preference or subjective bias to color, you know, my approach to, to teaching meditation. I think you said something that was really wise 
there, which was, especially when we're beginning, having an anchor can feel really helpful um, because we can sit down and just become so flooded with the discursive nature of the thinking mind that we're just mm-hmm. sort of getting tossed around by the waves and and not a lot happens. So there, I think there's value in the concentrative disciplines of sort of just like a boat dropping anchor. And that is whether that's like a, like a Buddhist, like a shamatha practice where we're noticing um, an anapana practice where we're starting to count or beginning to reflect like in a Vipassana or something that starts to like, it's almost as if the leash gets a little bit longer. And, um, and so I seem to go from, well, first, first thing I would actually say, even prior to that, if I could backtrack would be, I like to utilize the context of the koshas or the maya koshas and the yogic terminology or like the, the layers of the self. And so in that, context we have our physical body so those are the somatic practices we have the pranic which are like the breathing practices which are also somatic in a sense and then we have the the mental cognitive practices and we have the heart emotional practices those cognitive practices when they become less concentrative and more meditative we become gradually more absorbed into away from the, the monomaya kush, which is like the mental mind, and up into the vinyana maya kush, which is like the witness mind, we start to um, become a little less fixated on keeping the mind focused. So, mm-hmm. so the, the, the sort of the muscle of focus, the, mm-hmm. that contractive um, quality releases and reverts as it were into a more expanded and opening quality Mm -hmm. and that and and that's where i received your practice of sort of sit down and be quiet um i call it natural state presence because to me it's where the mind gets even though it has this contractive and expansive quality it's the expansive quality that more closely resembles the nature of self or beingness and it's more fundamental presence where it's less identified with the phenomenological features of not just the external world, but the derivatives of the thinking mind as well, thought, Mm. emotion, sensation, Mm. et cetera. And so we start to peel back those layers until we get to that one. And then I really like to even meditate on the one who's meditating and I hit this point and go like, who is this here? And it, it's almost reminds me of if I had like a shoelace and I took the edge of it and put it back through the center of the knot and pulled it. And then the whole thing would open and release. There's a certain sense of, ah, that's really where we maybe start to go in those more theta like states um, that you were speaking to, but at least get behind the, the beta states and, uh, you know, and even the alpha states. And so I think that, that process itself can take a little bit of time. So mm-hmm. personally speaking, my practice is typically to find a core practice would just be to sit down and to presence each layer, just let attention sort of touch it and then, in, and then, in, and then let it have its nature. 
So I'll, I'll usually even start with the environment around me. So I'll, mm-hmm. you know, take in the sounds that I could hear, the, the temperature, the ground or whatever I'm sitting on, um, just to the external, pro- air quotes, external properties. And then I kind of make an agreement to not interfere, to have like a non-interfering attention mm-hmm. with them. And then mm-hmm. I go to the next layer, which would be the body. And I just check in with sensation, nervous system. Sometimes I invite a little bit of movement. So it's not a an imposed or obligatory sort of, which has a sort of like subtle punitive quality of like, now you must sit still. I, I like to like have maybe a little bit of asana, little neck stretch, shoulder roll, mm-hmm. jaw release, do some actual, what I think of as um, my somatic resets. This could be a little bit of tapping. Um, it could be a little bit of shaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be let the, let the tongue drop away from the roof of the mouth. Let the center of the tongue become heavy. That activates the vagus nerve. Uh, unclench the jaw. Soften behind the eyes. Relax the belly. Relax the pelvic floor. Let the bones get heavy. And it's just like a little like guide. Quick, you know, This might take 30 seconds to a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I move sort of into the pranic level of the breath and the energy. And I could insert, if I, depending on how elaborate this sort of methodology is, um, insert a pranayama practice. Um, if you're not familiar with pranayama, if you're listening, it's like um, a wide pantheon of breathing practices. Um, but even just a simple round of a few like falling out breaths, like just collect a deep breath in and then a big sighing, mm. like a really good for the nervous system to just kind of mm. expel and excavate whatever might have accumulated since the last time I, I took a moment to become present. And um, so I'm kind of like going through the rooms of the house of the self and clearing mm. them to some degree. And then I invite them to linger in my awareness. So then I do a check-in with my thoughts and I just sort of notice them as if I were watching a movie the projector is sitting behind my seat. The screen is in front of me and I'm watching the stream of thoughts just sort of, you know, cascade or parade by my awareness. And I start to go from being in that stream to gradually becoming the observer of that stream. I don't try to stop that stream. That is one Mm. very important thing. I think if you're listening today and wanting to glean some, tools from, um, you know, at least from my own journey is um, wrestling with the mind to try to stop thinking is not a very effective or healthy process, in my opinion, because, again, to let each part have its nature, it's like telling the projector not to project. If I imagine like, um, sometimes I'll think of like going to a coffee shop, and there's a drive through. And it's like, you know, the thoughts are like the cars, you know, coming up, or pausing and going. And they're just sort of moving through the cycle of what they do. So mm. even if I could have a moment of stilled consciousness, my mind is going to continue to think. I don't think it's about stopping the mind from thinking, but about accessing the self that exists behind the thinking mind. And in mm. my experience, we get there via release of the control that efforting mm-hmm. to try to stop what is natural. 
And so as I can then drop back another layer and just sort of let the thoughts come and let the thoughts go, I see their deeper hooking into the emotional self where I think of, you know, where I'm carrying maybe a subtle film or overlay of of what I might call mood. Um, And there might be some intense feelings that are present and there might not be, and there might be beautiful feelings that are present. And so again, I don't try to micromanage the experience of my Mm -hmm. emotional self. I'm just trying to expand my larger sense of self around that experience to now be the space within which all emotions, all thoughts, all breath, all sensations, and all environmental fluctuations have their own nature, which Mm -hmm. then affords me the ability to have my own true nature. And that's where I tend to arrive in like that sitting back process. So sometimes there's like an on-ramp for me that's a few minutes of moving through these layers and sort of regulating and kind of making a little commitment to each of them. I give you your nature, I give you your nature, I give you your nature, et cetera. And then when I land, I might just take a few breaths into being awareness, right? Just being awareness itself, but not so much just a pure neutral awareness, but really where we started our conversation, a compassionate awareness. So it's as if to everything that arises at any level of those experiences, I'm saying like, I bow to you. Um, this too is my practice and I'm not in energetic resistance to what's here. And then if I am, and I notice that I'm hooked, then I just bow to that and say, this too is my practice. And so as soon as I come online to that, I'm just sort of allowing it to be after a while that becomes more in the yoga teachings, we would call this the movement from jnana to vinyana or the movement from like knowledge to embodied wisdom, which is I don't have to think that thought anymore. It's it's moved into a non-cognitive um, presence that just things come and things go. And then if I can mm-hmm. just spend a little bit of time there, um, when I return gradually to open-eyed state, I invite where we started the experience of the the life to continue to flow and now i'm just moving my body as i'm in this meditation Mm -hmm. and then of Mm -hmm. course we get pulled into identification with all the things everything gets reactivated and excited and there's a certain maybe set of understandings that i that i realize when i'm in my practice that are the things that triggered me before, while they still might, they don't mm-hmm. tend to, um, and this isn't a linear thing, but it's more like if I could take a broad brushstroke over time um, and say, look, what are the results of having meditated for you know 25 years or something? It would be like, um, they, don't tr- they don't trigger me quite as deep. Um, I notice them a little bit quicker the noticing is imbued with less judgment and more kindness and encouragement. And then the 
the the reclaiming of of center is or the releasing of what's not center might be a more accurate way of saying it is a more natural process um mm-hmm. and and in this way all the parts are included in the humanness of the journey and and then i try to the last piece i'll share is like i try to have something that i have this like a clean as i go practice like if i'm cleaning my dishes while I'm cooking. I don't have a pile of dishes to clean at the end of dinner. So I kind of move through my day like that, where um, I pick a ritual. Usually I'll use washing my hands because it's something that I do often through the day. And I'll use those as like little 60 second sort of just like check in and release the accumulation so that I'm not meeting the next moment from the accumulation of past moments. And then by the time I get to the evening, um, where I might go into that default mode network, I've really trained a different nervous system, a different pranic field, a different mental emotional state. And now there's the capacity to really grow that, you know, like continue to like feed the soil that and, and mm-hmm. uh, of what I've been cultivating through my day. And then day becomes week, become months, become year. Not to put it into a linear mm-hmm. construct solely, but there's an element of working with the linear self within time and in the duality you spoke of and so it kind of looks like that and that that would be like my core practice and then I'll have sort of like specialty practices like if I know that I'm like free falling into a depressive state I have a one I call um like emotional bandwidth and it's like it's about like identifying where the emotion lives in my body, breathing into that space love, letting that space breathe out, surrender, um have more somatic ones, more cerebral ones, or traditional internal repetition of mantra practices, um, mm. whole, whole sort of collection or community of meditations. Um, but that's the one that feels most natural to me is a, a quick little check into each layer and then mm. usually sit for about 25 minutes. Um, and just there seems to be a clicking into place where I can feel my brain reset. And that actually is another topic because I started to play with designing brain center meditations, moving through particular sequences of regions of the brain in order to be more proactive in the cultivation of my neural pathways. And that's been really powerful too. Wow. I look forward to um, sitting with one of your um, meditations, Scott. Yeah, they sound like um, super detailed and um, yeah, expansive. Yeah, I like the sound of a lot of that. I was it's interesting what you say about um, you know accumulation and you know what what we accumulate, whether in a day, in a, in a week, in a month, in our lifetime, um, which. And, you know, reflecting on how our culture is, we're very, um, we're consumers, right? We're always consuming. Um, There's there's so much on offer, isn't there? Even in our well-being world or spiritual world, there's so much resource, there's so much content, there's so many new books, so many podcasts. Um, And in outside of that world, again, there's so much consumption. And then obviously on the physical level, food, you know, obviously being in America, we know what, what an issue that is. So we are continuously 
consuming and accumulating and there isn't enough digestion. There's so much consumption, there's not enough digestion. And this is this creates blockages, I find, you know, like blockages in, in the body, whether that's in our in our gut or intestines or whether emotional blockages or through trauma and you know and um unprocessed emotions create blockages and i think there is when you said about being in the flow of life it's like it really requires us to become empty you know become empty if we really want to be truly flowing and merged with 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 life and allow the life force to be expressed through us it really requires us to do that level of work where we're emptying out of of ourselves all of the stuff we've accumulated on all of those different levels um you know psychologically emotionally spiritually mentally physically um i think then there is potential for i like to say the divine essence you know that that divine intelligence the the energy that moves the waves that sets the suns that you know the the, the breeze your breath um that germinates the seed all of that power that infinite potential of our universe and our creation we are that we're part of that and i think it requires us to really cleanse and excavate and be empty and and i think that all of our you know there is in this expression can come through us and i think that's where we can all really shine and we all have this you know unique like expression that wants to emerge and it's a universal, but then because it's going to be unique as well. And I think it requires us to stop trying. You know, I think we're very much, we're striving and we want more. We need more knowledge, we need more things. We need more money. You know, we're just collecting more and more experiences and there isn't enough like oh, di- digestion, assimilation, absorption, um, and then allowing, you know, and, and you said the word surrender. Um, which I, I was reflecting with a friend the other day, you know, that meditation is is an act of surrender, isn't it? It's an act of vulnerability, you're really opening yourself up, and especially if you go to a guided meditations, um, it requires you to really feel vulnerable and, and surrender to what's what's going on, and especially if there's a teacher to close your eyes and you know to to allow that to happen. But it's a real act of take me, I'm yours. You know, like giving up, we want to, you know, give up your, your identity and your personality, um, and being safe, knowing that, that something truer, more natural, uh, more authentic has the potential to emerge in, in that space. We've just got to create that space, create the environment for that to emerge, you know, still the mind. I've got this tattoo on my arm. It says, silence the mind, straighten the spine align with the divine yeah. i feel like that's that's our work you know like quieten the mind down empty the mind sort your body out become aware of your of your physical posture we know how much power there is in the spine kundalini whatever you want to call it you know there is a there is a flow of energy that wants to make its way up through the spine and we're all so hunched over <laughs> you know mm. we've just got to like we've got to do, do the basics look after your mind look after the body and then that you know the the universal source will do the rest i think but it requires that surrender humility you know mm-hmm. um yeah there's something so beautiful about 
the availing of oneself to a possibility that is beyond the state that that self, like that we find ourselves in. And it's so often we're so identified with where we are, what we think, what we believe, what we want, how we're going to get there. There is this embedded humility to sense that there's something more. And then how can I bring myself into receptivity to that presence so that it can move through me and express Mm -hmm. ultimately itself as me. And so the Mm -hmm. emptying process is um, it's, it's, it's really even a relinquishing of doership other than coming Mm -hmm. into the seat Mm -hmm. and then opening up the possibility for it to come through. Um, I was writing a piece, um, I think it was last year or so. And it was like, um, like if if I dropped what I'm holding, would it all fall apart, or would it fall into place like grace beating in my heart, like surrendering the eye that's trying to mm-hmm. surrender, right? Like maybe that's mm-hmm. a good place to start, like and just come in and open, and then the excavation flows naturally. The alignment comes through because it it feels like this. I know we're trying to like grasp at something that's bigger than our, our intellectual capacity, but like this divine intelligence that you speak of, it's like, I experience it as the energy of grace. And it's like, it's always looking for open instruments to express through. Mm. And so if we come through that into that, just the intentionality and, and make ourselves available, it will move through us and express as us it's like we're creation creating itself out of itself and Mm -hmm. the more we can surrender to that process we don't even need to know where it's going we just simply align there's not a lot of choice making there's not a lot of obsession around the future and how it's going to be and so there's there is this this gradual sort of matriculation through these layers um and I want to kind of guide this towards a piece that you wrote and ask you to share it. And it's, it's sort of like the beginning of experiencing ourselves as different entities. Um, and then as I go, well, like, who am I? And I go through that excavating process, that emptying process, I start to land in the root of me. And when I land in the root of me, I land into this movement from like wave consciousness into ocean consciousness. And I, then move from like, not just that, like, I am the wave realizing that I'm the ocean, but I'm the ocean having the experience of being a wave. And how beautiful is that? And then when I look around, I don't see anything other than what I am. I just see you as looking as me looking back at me, but also refracted, like you were saying into this personalized expression, like one beam of light moves through one prism and yet it refracts itself out in the multitudinous mm. expression of variegatedness that are all actually interacting with one another. 
And then we can come into like expression and bonds and love and creativity and art and joy and all of these things. But, and Mm -hmm. to the point that we're actually wounding too, that like we're learning those lessons and healing. And um, so anyway, you had written a piece um, about being a drop in the ocean. And I was hoping that you would share that. Oh, sure. I would um, would love to. Thanks, Scott. That was a a beautiful, um, segue to uh to the piece i love how you um love how you describe that um so the quote is from rumi um persian poet who uh just writes just beautifully really succinctly from the heart and clear that you know touched something and you know i i find for any of the writers i've come across that has found a way of expressing or describing the indescribable because obviously words fall short when it comes to this i think you used the word ineffable mystery somewhere i saw you write it's like we can speak as much as we want but ultimately well rumi also said silence is the language of god all else is poor translation so i think that that Mm. sums it up right um Mm. so he his quote is um you are not a drop in the ocean you are the entire ocean in a drop And so this is my piece based on that. Um, The world is a very scary place when looking through the lens of I and me, simply an insignificant part with no impacts on the myriad of things out there. Me versus the world in the limited individualistic mind and heart. And it's natural to operate from this perspective. A hard wiring into personality or identity becomes a safety mechanism and a veil over reality. We feel safe in ideas of our nation because there are many just like us or a profession or political party, folks with a similar view to us, or perhaps our connection extends to family and friends where we feel whole and connected. And this limits us to a small amount of people in these groups. But beyond that, there may still be this sense of insignificance. And so this quote from Rumi I find so powerful in that he shows that as individual microcosms we contain the entirety of the macrocosm the depth the beauty and the majesty of the vast ocean of the universe is contained within all of us as drops and perhaps from this perspective individual differences that keep us separate dissolve and unique expressions of the whole are celebrated and i like to think if there was this big bang no thing this explosion to all things here and now then that very creative potential the divine intelligence the essence the energy is imbued in everything that we are and everything that we see and i think with a fixation on the external world and all of its things we can feel completely insignificant everything is coming at you the world is chaotic and it impacts us all in different ways meditation is this gentle shift towards the inner world, a world which is vast and boundless. There is so much to explore. Alan Watts said, know yourself to be nothing, but feel yourself to be everything. And meditation shows me this journey from the intellectual mind to the feeling heart. And in that, I really don't know anything of the mystery of this existence, but I feel it all. And for one This has helped me in choosing understanding over judgment when it comes to interacting with others. 
And I notice a little more now that when operating from the inside out, there is clear evidence of the interconnectedness of things, how thought patterns, emotion and behavior become mirrored back to me in subtle ways, sometimes blissful, sometimes painful. But this is the beauty of being human. There is almost this dissolution of separation, at least in moments where I recognize that instead of me having an experience, I am the experience. And then there is an opportunity to witness how the inner experience is impacting the outer experience. Reflection and contemplation of experience eventually becomes wisdom. And this is rich and profound and unique to us. And eventually, in the form of our very presence, becomes a gift for all that we touch. Mm-mm-mm. Yes, 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 yes. Man, your channel is open. It's beautiful when that comes through. It's 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 interesting to feel it's like source presence energy speaking, like you feel it as that. And it is coming through your unique vessel. But it's like it's talking about itself. <laughs> it's like it it right, like it is that energy describing itself through the mechanism of our language system. And and so to pick up on the beauty of this idea that fundamental to it all is like we are that in Sanskrit, um, the Mahavakya from the Vedanta teachings is like a Mahavakya for people that are listening and don't know, it's like a big Maha big and then like um, Vak is like speech. So it's like the big utterance. It's like meaning a really powerful statement is tatwam asi and it means like that thou art like if you if there if 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 there's a a god by however we come to know this term it's like it's this omnipresent totality that is embedded and imbued into all things as all things yet beyond all things both imminent and transcendent and and that we are not other than that. And to experience our experience life, experience being, experience presence, it's not what we know, but but who we're being. It's it's the experience that we're having in this moment as a quality of presence itself. And ultimately, I, I think it's incredible that we have a tool that is almost like a sacred inheritance that has been handed down through millennia that says, here's how you come to know yourself as that divine intelligence, that divine presence, this, this gift of this practice. And yet we've seen countries rise and fall. We've seen all these different things come and go on our planet but yet just kind of traveling along without being stuck in any authority of institution, this meditation practice just keeps getting handed down from human to human. There's a perennial presence of truth that pervades any seemingly different cultural context um, that would prevent it from arising. It arises and spreads anyway, because it's truth. And Mm -hmm. so how, beautiful how grateful you know to feel that we can receive the gift of this practice that is helping us to receive the gift of ourselves and Mm. 
in so doing, you know, we come into what is the nature of truth and you have some other pieces, um, the idea of just like the, uh, I'm thinking of the collection that you shared with me. It was like thoughts on God. Mm-hmm. And I would love to, to invite you again, if you're, if you're willing to share these pieces, these ruminations that seem not to just be about it where like the like like the spirit becomes one more it one more other one more thing that we could put a box around but sort of the the dissolution of those boundaries um but still given voice so i'm interested to hear what you have to say on on these um sort of the contemplations that have been produced by your meditations you know, mm. like your own upanishads mm. Um, that's beautiful brother how, how you just explained all of that and I, and I love how you talk of meditation being this timeless gift um, and the gift that is not given it's just ours for the taking you know that's the, that's the beauty of it um, so uh, yeah these, these pieces um, thoughts about God um, it's interesting because you know the word God and like I always stay away from it mm-hmm. and over the last yeah, same, but i also like it yeah me, yeah, me too I, yeah i love it and like over the, the past you know six weeks eight weeks or so um i've been re- reading a lot of Rumi poems and of course i use the word god all the time and listening to a lot of um the christian mystics so thomas merton meister eckhart um mm-hmm. thomas keating um and there's, there's a few others and they speak so beautifully on on God, on, on love and, and compassion and beauty and contemplation. And like these words don't get used enough. And, you know, they, 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 they have the potential to touch us and move us in, in, in ways um, that we have to be obviously ready to receive. Like you said, it's an open channel and the, the dance and the transmission can only happen when we're truly open and ready to receive. But I think, um, Words that are shared from the heart are received from the heart. And so I hope these are um, received by by the hearts. Uh, so this is Thoughts About God 1.0. <laughs> so this, this heartache of mine is only bearable in the thought that it must be a meditation on something so beautiful like you. This manner in which I'm drowning in the ocean of silence between us is only endurable because I'm submerging in you. This smoldering of my soul is only making me smile in the knowing that it's been burnt by you. And so thoughts about God (laughs) 2.0. Maybe the gift is in the very yearning for in the aching of yearning, be it tearful and tormenting, breathes proof of something higher to which I'm reaching. Maybe the reward is in the very longing, for the suffering of longing is textured, it's deep and dark, but my love, how it's felt so purely in the heart. Maybe the winning is in the very seeking, for in the laboring of seeking, be it confusing, arduous and never-ending, I become illumined, because I see it's you who are in fact seeking me. Mm. 
There's um That's yeah, two short thing. pieces there. There is there's 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 one more, but I think uh those two are uh, are quite closely related and, and speak to that I think um what we all have this this longing and this seeking um for something bigger than ourselves, for something grander than ourselves, although we don't necessarily know it and it may be manifested as excessive shopping or mm drugs and substance abuse or you know like unhealthy relationships or you know that striving for more money or a different job role like there's something in us you know that, that, that wants um something higher than us and we we work towards it and it just it's, it's channeled in in different ways for all of us maybe sometimes unhealthy um and these pursuits are you know are, are very noble you know this could be like the, the pursuit of like a, a, a cancer research um, solution that's going to help millions of people. I'd, you know, so it's, it's the same sort of thing, but I think um, ultimately, I think if, if we remove the, the content and the context of all of those things, then, you know, the real like expression of our longing is for this, um, this mystery and the sort of the indescribable essence that pervades all of our existence. And there's like the longing for and the devotion to that's so mm -hmm. beautiful. And then there's that peace that it can run through, you know, I, I saw it in what you shared. I've seen it in Rumi's writing. It's like the, the, that like, I was just speaking to it from like, grace is looking for the instruments. Your Dharma is seeking you. It's yeah. How do you, how do you hold that relationship between like the the wave wanting to experience itself as the ocean, but the ocean is just going to come through you. Like the, the truth is actually looking for you and, and love, maybe love and truth are synonyms, you know? And mm. uh, yeah, how do you hold that? Mm, really interesting question. But perhaps that, that, that is, that, that, that longing is, is the love. I think that perhaps is the... Mm is the recognition that you are it because right. I mean, I don't think, you know, like we, do, do we really have that longing for this, you know, whatever you want to call it, if, if you weren't already connected to it. So if there right. wasn't this, yes. I, this, this, this okay. doer, you know, then it's just happening. Yeah. That, that hit me once in the, in the, like the, the bottom of the pit of heartbreak where mm. I was starting to like just want to breathe and heal and understand, but going through so much hurt and thinking of like when a child like burns their hand on the stove and like the pain is actually not the problem. It's like, there's like the injury wound, but the pain is the signal that there's something dangerous happening and that like pain must be an emissary of healing in that regard. And so mm -hmm. my heartbreak is actually the seed of self-love looking for itself in this moment. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. Right. Like the pain is the yeah. teacher. Um, yeah. So there was a piece I wanted to um, pull up to, 
to share with you as well. Um, it might take a moment to um, to find it if you don't mind giving me um, just a, a second um, to pull it out and um, and just share. And it's um, I'll set it up while I'm pulling it up, and it's it's really about this idea that um, devotion is um, like it's like such a profound expression of like when we get into non-duality and duality, there's something about holding duality within the larger lens of non-duality that allows devotion to happen so that we can experience um, even as we talk about like that I am that, that, there's something about subject-object dualism that allows us to be in devotion to. And when we can experience that, it's um, it's like a gift to get to then come into the expressed frequency. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so this is a piece that's um, about really bowing to um, the devotion, um, not just being in the devotion, but in a sense, like bowing to the devotion itself. Um, so I want to invite, um, us to take a breath to our listeners to like, just collect for a moment. We've been sharing so, so much and, um, to kind of take this in, um, in a sense as a meditation itself. So, if you're in a space uh, wherever you are and you're available to maybe sit down, um, if it feels safe for you to let the eyes close, um, just take a few breaths and a moment to land uh, wherever you are to maybe just feel your body, your breath, a sense of life force moving through you. Maybe you can hear the sounds all around you and the sensations of even emotion moving, breath moving, thought moving, years moving life moving and behind all that moves can you feel into the unchanging ground of being itself the enabling presence that sits as the substratum the background Maybe there's space here to take another breath. Maybe there's some space to let go, to soften, to exhale. And then in the silence, 
you can feel what could maybe only be described as something more. So this poem is called Your Grace. When they say the only constant is change, I wonder if that's true. Because when I see my own reflection, the only face I see is you. How are you somehow beyond everything, yet in everything too? Or is everything in you? Or maybe you are everything, and everything is you. Maybe the greatest illusion is the number two. What is truth? Can it truly be objective? Because if there's an object, there's a subject, and that can't be non-dual. Yet all my perspectives feel subjective, like they're shaped by a certain hue. If I could shake off the scribbled etch-a-sketch of thoughts swirling in my mind, I wonder if it would be emptiness I'd find, or if my truest nature is divine. I imagine the truth will be revealed in time. Unless time is an ephemeral line, I imagine in my mind. It's kind of a paradox in that this understanding took me time to realize what I make real is how my eyes shape my experiences into meanings I've inscribed. Yet is a meaning that I've made any less meaningful than a meaning that's innate. Maybe the truth is my heart is less ablaze by a truth whose answers are unveiled in final ultimacies like destiny or fate, because they all feel like destinations, like a stop sign or final resting place, when the truth is I'd rather meet you in all of life's reflections and just keep bowing to your grace. Yeah. So devotion as the orientation, and then I start to extrapolate this as a practice, and I start mm. to, to go back to the moments, like if I'm in a, in a, in a space in my relationship where a lot of big emotion is coming up, like, can I be in devotion to my partner's nervous system? Mm. Can I be in devotion to um, like watching my children blossom and their consciousness and not co-op their process with advice and, you know, can I, can I be set, can I be sensitive to like what I had shared earlier and be like, you know, my daughter, for example, you know, she came home from school yesterday and she's like, so I'm in this class and it's called AVID and we're learning about different career options and we could do this or we could do that, or we could do this. And I was like, can you remind me how old you are again? And she's like, I'm 13 dad, you know? And I'm like, so just wear it like a loose fitting garment, like, you know, like take it with a grain of salt, my love, because 
that's not your responsibility to carry right now. And by the time you get to the point where you want to make that decision, you'll have experienced so many things that you can leave that up to future you. And like, let's, let's go watch Percy Jackson. Like, let's go have fun, like be a kid. And um, like, can I be in devotion to her journey? And, um, you know, and so when you were speaking about absorption and the digestive assimilative aspect, it's like every yoga practice ends with a Shavasana. Why? So that we can be in devotion to whatever arose. It's an act of devotion to make space for digestion. Right. So to slow down, to be more present, it's why I like these podcasts to be two hours, which is kind of where we've landed now. Mm -hmm. And, um, and to, and to be in devotion to the connection, the conversation. Um, I think it's a beautiful end point for us that the, instead of ultimacy being like, you finally got there, you know, the way we might imagine the spiritual air quotes journey it's more like that big like if we go to the big bang for a moment because you presence that earlier and imagine that the big bang wasn't an event that happened a long time ago and that awakening isn't an event that is the final perfectionism of you that happens one day out there and you collapse Mm -hmm. those two identities into the same moment and that moment is called now And then the Big Bang is the unmanifest or the infinite expressing itself as manifest into and as manifest uh, is as the finite in this moment. And we are literally the Big Bang. There's aspects of us that are formless and there's aspects of us that are form. And we're a vessel through which consciousness is literally materializing itself. And so we're literally standing in the big bang constantly. And Mm -hmm. that's what awakening is. And if you missed it, no big deal. Cause here's another moment and Mm -hmm. here's another one. And here's another one right now, right now. And right now, and hence it being a moment by moment practice where we can shed the identity of the one that's trying to get there in service Mm -hmm. of being the one who's here. And we open to the preciousness of this present moment and all we see is it reflecting itself back out in, in mm-hmm. infinite diversity, but yet imbued with the same energy. And that's such an, and it, and I don't even know that the surrender is a, is an, is a cognitive act at that point, as much as it is like seeing the most beautiful sunset and, and you can, it kind of takes your breath away and you're in, and you're awe and you're in that space of awe. And what you were describing earlier, if like it can make you feel so small and insignificant. Mm. And somehow that is like the most significant feeling that you can have. Mm. Yeah. So beautiful. I, I, I love that. How you said that about the, the big bang. Um, yeah. Each and every moment is a dying and a rebirth. A dying and a rebirth, breath in, breath out. You know, it's, it's that it's always going on, and so just yeah, it just requires us to allow that that process to take place. You know, mm. absolutely. Yeah. So, parting thoughts from you um, for people that are listening. Um, 
Yeah. Is there anything that feels unsaid? Um, anything that you'd like to add in any way to feel complete in this conversation? Uh, I'll put you in one frame of consideration is that because this is a podcast that will um, live longer than the bodily incarnations of Scott and Arjun, <laughs> that maybe one day, you know, your great, great, great grandkids hop on the internet and they're like, whoa, look what I just found. So is there any message that you would like to leave in the time capsule of this conversation? Uh, um, I would say infuse every word and act with your heart. Just come from heart-based expression in absolutely everything that you do, from when you make your cup of tea, to you change a diaper, to how you write a poem, or how you get on the bus, do it with your heart. Mm. From my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing your poetry, your your presence, um, the practices, um, and just your whole being, your whole presence. Thank you for, for sharing your heart and blessing this, this space with such positive intentions. And I'm grateful for this connection and, um, uh, and opportunity to dive deeper into, to me, what is like the richness of life. I hope mm -hmm. um, for those of you listening and being on this journey with us today, you feel that. Um, that you don't just hear that or heard words or ideas or beliefs or interpretations, but more importantly are left with a feeling in your heart and in your body and in your being that feels like love. And, and then may that be a ripple effect that moves out into the world through you just by being you. So thank you for, for joining Healing the Divide. And until next time, Thank you, friends. Thank you, Arjun. Thank you, Scott. Peace. Thank you.